So we have to ask ourselves, what would the Holy Prophet Muhammad do for New York City? Now what's interesting here is that this is a very New York style topic. We always ask, what are they going to do for us? We're in New York City. What do you have to offer? Why are you here? And what is beautiful about this idea is that over a hundred years ago, a man was told to travel across the world and to go and establish Islam in America. And his intent was to start this journey of Islam in America through New York, this very city. But I want us to go back 1400 years for just a moment. Go back, go back with me and think about what it was that the Holy Prophet Muhammad gave for the desert of Arabia. What was unique about his existence there, his presence there? What difference and what influence did he make there? And I want to draw a picture for you so you can see what it was like at that time in that era. It was an era when fathers would bury their own daughters for fear of the financial burden that daughters would have on them. They would buy and sell women like they were cattle. They would beat and capture people, put them into slavery, and they would technically own their body and everything that they ever thought and wished. They would consume alcohol like it was water. And the wealth inequality, well, a handful controlled everything in the society. They controlled the government. They controlled every aspect of society, just those few people who owned and controlled everything. That was 1400 years ago in the deserts of Arabia. Now let's fast forward to our present day here in New York City, right here, right now. If you didn't know this, 18,714 domestic violence cases happened here in New York City in 2020 just to women alone. Where women were the victims, there were 18,714 cases. And the reason I'm saying 2020, do you remember what happened in 2020? We were all in lockdown, we were home. So you can imagine that you were all stuck in a home with the people you love and the people you cherish and the only people you could survive with. In the middle of a pandemic, you can't get out. You have no way of surviving. You are stuck with them. And they are the ones who in just New York City alone, there were 18,714 cases. Now what about objectifying women? You all know that the Me Too movement has been rising and rising and rising. What is it? It is an awareness that it doesn't matter what section of society women are in today in America, they are objectified, they are abused, and they are treated again like they are cattle. If you didn't know this, every nine seconds a woman is abused in America. Not in Indonesia, not anywhere else, here in America. Every nine seconds. This is happening here in our city just the same, in New York. Now let's talk about modern day slavery. 
You might think slavery is gone. We have all of these Juneteenth and we have Independence Day and we have all these other different celebrations to acknowledge that we have declared slavery to be over. And yet, is slavery really over? Is there not a systemic marginalization of societies or various groups of societies here in America today? Is there not injustices? Look at your credit card debt alone. Don't the credit cards own people at this point? As if it is slavery? Where they're taking 30% back from an amount of money they give you? What about the loans? Even the speed cameras. Observe when you're driving through this city of New York City. Observe where they place them. Do they place them in rich, posh neighborhoods that can afford these cameras? Because everybody is speeding just the same. No, they put them in poor neighborhoods, neighborhoods of people of color. Now what about alcohol consumption? There was a study recently done in UK where they proved that even a single sip of alcohol has effects of brain damage. Very minute, but it hasn't. Even a single sip. And if you didn't know this, in America alone, every single year, 95,000 people die as a result of alcohol consumption. Whether it's overdoses, whether it's accidents, whether it's health-related. But there's nearly 100,000 people in America every year that die because of alcohol consumption. And lastly, on this list of mine that I shared with you today, we have people like Jeff Bezos and many others who are very wealthy, very rich. And if you didn't know this, 3% of the population of the wealthiest in America own currently 54% of the nation's wealth. 54%. Last year it was 51%. It's continuously increasing. The question you might ask, what does this have to do with Islam? What does this have to do with the Holy Prophet Muhammad? And what I want to share with you today is this very basic concept that we've all forgotten. And that is that the Holy Prophet Muhammad brought about a social change. He transformed society. He uplifted society. He redefined the moral standard of society. He took a people that were considered wild, who were immersed in tribalism, divided, divisive, as much as you can imagine. They could not go from one town to another without fear of death. He unified them. He uplifted them. And he made them leaders of the world. And he did this in a span of only 23 years. Many of us have been in America longer than that. And we haven't seen much difference, much change. We stay with the status quo. But in the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, if he came here in New York City today, within a very short amount of time, he would transform the very society we see. And how would he do that? And why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just say, you know what, let's talk about peace. You know, Muslims, I'm a Muslim. Let's talk about peace. That's what we do. We've been doing that for years now. Or would he just say, you know, let's talk about how God is one, he's not two, he's not three, let's debate with the Christians, and let's spend time and focus on that. No, he wouldn't do that either. He would uplift the society. He would transform society. That is why he's here. 
And that's why he came on this earth. He came for that social order, the new world order. A transformation that this country so direly needs today. And that burden is on your shoulders, those who claim to be the followers of that Prophet Muhammad And that brings me to this very important quote by JFK. He said, it is not what the government can do for you, but it is what you can do for the government. So it is not what Muhammad can do for New York. It is what we as Ahmadis can do for the Holy Prophet Muhammad For the truth, for Islam, for that social order, for that change and that revolution that this place needs. The thing is, many of us hear these speeches and we think, yeah, sure, we're talking about revolutions, our khulafa are talking about it. We're talking about changing the world. But that's not really our problem. Somebody else would do it. It's somebody else's problem. Or these are just dreams that we're having. But I tell you right now, if you bring people who were not born in Ahmadiyyat, who have not relaxed and been complacent like the rest of us, they will tell you that this place needs it so direly you have no idea. Many of us are attracted by what we see outside. We see big buildings. We assume that there's peace and there's happiness there. There's wealth. We want to be part of that wealth. But you don't realize the corruption, the death, the sorrow, the depression. That is all really holding up the foundation of those tall buildings. And they are eagerly looking for the message you have. The message of the Holy Prophet Muhammad And you are keeping it to yourself. Because many of us have forgotten why the Holy Prophet Muhammad came on this earth. Let me break it down for you. Many of us talk about, you know, we have Tahir Academy. We have these trivia and these trivial issues that we memorize. Who, was, who died when and who was born when. And, but this is not what the Holy Prophet Muhammad spoke about. If you read any book about why the Sahaba joined, the vast majority joined because of the ideology, the moral standard, the society that he was redesigning. And today the world will join for the same reason. Many of you have forgotten, and that's what I want to remind you on some of these very basic things. The first issue I mentioned to you that was in Arabia was they would bury their daughters. And I told you that here in this country alone, in New York City alone, our daughters up to 18,174 are abused every year by their significant partners, by the people that claim to love them. But the Holy Prophet Muhammad, he said anybody, any man, any husband, any father who has three daughters and raises them teaches them, educates them, empowers them, and fulfills that responsibility on those three daughters, the doors of heaven are open for him. This was a time when people were on the alternative, burying their daughters, saying, I don't want to raise two dollars for this person. I'd rather let them die. And in that scenario, in that world, he said no. And he raised men, who had the love for their women, for their wives, for their children, for their daughters. He helped rewire their brains to understand the worth and the great value. So much so, that when a man asked, who should I love more, my father or my mother? He said, mother. He asked again, 
He must have thought that he would say father and I would be done with this. He said mother again. Then a third time he asked, thinking okay, now he'll say father and I can ignore my mother. He again said mother. And then when he asked the fourth time, he said okay, now the father. That gives you the idea that he was rewiring brains. He was telling them how important a woman is. And that is how we have to rewire ourselves. But he didn't do it just by saying things. He had actions. He was a 25-year-old man, a bachelor, had never been married. And he decided and chose to marry somebody who was a widow, who was 40 years old, 15 years older than him. He had no problem with it. Today, when we as Ahmadis are given a proposal, we're like, no, the color of the skin isn't good enough for me. She doesn't come from the right caste. I don't like what town she lives in. The borough is not so good. These are excuses we give. But the Holy Prophet Muhammad he said that the merits of a beautiful and blessed woman is that you should run after them in the sense that you should be okay with whatever else they have. It is their character. It is what they represent that is more important. And not only that, again, how he emphasized the importance of women for us men here. He said, in fact, God said in the Holy Quran, that if you are a believer, and you want to aspire to be the best of the believers, Allah says, I give you two people you can be like. Two examples that you have to live by. If you can live like them, then you are truly at the top of the believer chain, if you want to call it that. He said the first is Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh. He said if you have faith, be like Hazrat Asiya. This is the Holy Quran, this is God Almighty saying it. He said, but if you have greater faith, then be like Maryam. Be like Hazrat Maryam. The mother of Isa He didn't mention any men here. He told the men, look to be like these women. These powerful women. Whose faith exceeded all others. And that we should strive to be in that love. Again, he rewired the way we think. Now let's talk about the second thing. Where women are being bought and sold like cattle. In this day and age, we have the Me Too movement. Where if a woman is hired, she's hired because of the beauty of her, or her beauty. And if she's fired, it's because she doesn't allow the men who are in charge of her to do as he pleases. Again, being treated like cattle, like animals. But the Holy Prophet Muhammad, he uplifted women. He said, look, if a woman married to a you know, man decides to go and work, guess what? That earning is hers. She is so independent that even something that she earns, the man has no right to even touch it. Forget her, herself, her body, or who she is. Even what she earns, even what she possesses, that is hers. No man is allowed to touch it. And if you didn't know this, there's no other religion on the face of this earth that gives women that ability to do that. All other faiths, you can walk around, meet your neighbors, they will tell you the same thing. Their wives work, and the husband has full share of whatever they earn. They have no right to say, don't touch my money, this is my earnings. They're expected to work. There's places I went to in Africa, where they would marry more women, because that would be more employees, quote unquote. 
you would get them to work in the field. But here Islam says a whole different picture. Again, something unique to Islam. Women were told, you can divorce. You don't like the man you were married to or you, you said you liked him but now you don't like him? That's okay. You're more than welcome to walk away and say, Asalaamu Alaikum Jazakallah. That is a, a gift that was given by Allah Ta'ala, not by any man on this earth. And it was that transformation that led to these countries thinking that women can also get a divorce. Because religiously speaking, there is no religion in America today that allows women to get a divorce. It is the country itself. The law of the land allows them to get a divorce. Christianity doesn't. Christianity says if a woman gets a divorce, then she is now an adulterous woman. She's a zani, God forbid. And she can no longer get married to anybody else now. This is the standard that Islam gave 1400 years ago. And let's talk about parda for example. Many of our girls struggle with this idea of parda, but they don't understand the blessing. Why is parda there? It is so when you go into society, this Me Too movement is there. Why is it there? When you go into society, you would be judged based on your character. Not your genetic makeup. Not the way you are made and designed or, or, or born on this earth. That people should look past your physical beauty. They should stop objectifying you. That is the real purpose of parda. Because whether you like it or not, unfortunately men have a problem. They look at the beauty of women, period. And they have a very hard time distinguishing between the beauty of a woman and what she has to say or her personality or her character. And this is this psychological, this, this makeup of us is the reason why God Almighty has said that women should protect themselves by wearing a veil. So they can roam around society without this fear of being objectified. I remember a story in Canada. There was a classroom. On one side there was a girl who wore hijab. And on the other side there was a girl who didn't wear anything practically. And the guy in the middle was a gangster type of person. And he was talking to his friend on the left. Who was this girl who was scantily clad wearing barely any clothes. And he was talking to her with utter disrespect. Calling her names. So many different things. And in the middle of it he needed to use a pen. Or a pencil. And so he asked her in a very disrespectful way using all kinds of curse words. Do you have a pencil? And she responded, No, I don't. Get lost. The same gangster type of person turned to his right and he saw this girl wearing a hijab. His demeanor, his mannerisms immediately changed. His tongue was immediately wiped clean where he turned to her and said, Excuse me, do you have a pencil I can borrow? Why would he have this utter this all of a sudden immediate change in his demeanor. Because of the person he's looking at, he realizes that that woman respects herself. So much respect that she does not want to be treated like an animal. This is where the blessings of Parda really comes in. And no man here can go home and force their wives or daughters to do it. That's why I'm speaking to them. They have to understand the importance of it. And we're lucky to be in New York City. Jews are doing it, Sikhs are doing it, Muslims are doing it. There is no reason. I walk around in Shawar Kameez with confidence in New York City. I have no problem. Nobody looks at me twice. There's too many crazy people here for them to be worried about what I'm wearing. But the realistic thing is you don't have the same st stigmatisms that are involved in other cities where they've never seen a Muslim before. You have the ability to get up, 
and go around society, but do it with confidence and do it why you need to do it. Understand why. Holy Prophet Muhammad did it to uplift women. But now let's talk quickly about men. As I mentioned to you already that men were basically bought like slaves. They were captured, they were beat. And they had no control over their bodies. If somebody wanted to beat them for no reason, they would beat them. If they wanted to sell them, they would sell them. They told them to live on the street, they had to live on the street. They had no authority over their own selves. And I know that I've mentioned to you already that there is systemic racism in our country today. You all know this. And although we've claimed that slavery has ended in America, we see the ramifications of ending something without actually uplifting a people. You can end something by name, but if you allow them to remain in that systemic marginalized society, you don't give them funding in their cities, you don't give them funding for education, you don't focus any attention on them, for the next 200 years they'll remain the same way. But that's the difference between Islam. Because the Holy Prophet Muhammad taught us in such a beautiful manner, he said, when you stand for prayer, stand shoulder to shoulder. Whether you are a prince or a pauper or a homeless person. Immediately he taught us, he rewired our brain to realize and understand that there is no difference between us and somebody else, whether it's the color of their skin, whether it's the background, their caste, whether they are chaudhari or they are normal, it doesn't matter. They're all equal, whether they're from Bangladesh or Pakistan. It does not matter. You stand shoulder, you are not allowed to. I remember as a child, being reminded, there were people, kids I didn't like. But I knew that when I'm going in for the prayer, and if they're the only person standing there, I will stand next to them no matter what. It didn't matter if I didn't like this kid. Because I was reminded that the Holy Prophet ﷺ expects that we do not judge people. We stand shoulder to shoulder with everybody. That is how he ingrained this teaching in us. Have we forgotten it? Maybe. Maybe we've gotten comfortable with the idea that we can only stand with a few people we know or we're sitting at home or whatever it is. But you have to remember this. Why does he remind us five times a day to stand shoulder to shoulder with everybody, rich or poor? He did this for a reason. So that when we go out in the street and we're meeting somebody, we show them the same respect. We look at everybody equally. We don't treat somebody because of the color of their skin or for their background or the country they're from differently. Because at the end of the day, we are Muslims. We have been taught by the Holy Prophet Muhammad In such a way, he taught us how to treat them equally. He showed that you should teach them, educate them. And that is the best way to empower them. One of the ways that the Holy Prophet ﷺ in his time had taught the people that this is how we're going to end slavery. We're going to systematically allow them to be freed one by one. But when we do it, we're not going to throw them on the street saying figure it out on your own. We're going to educate them. We're going to clothe them. We're going to feed them. We're going to make them our leaders now. So that those thresholds can be crossed now. You see, just imagine for a moment. 1400 years ago, the Holy Prophet Muhammad is taken out of his city. Having to forcefully migrate in hiding. Arrives in this new city called Medina. In this city they have Jews. They have Arabs. 
And they have this class that's going to have to struggle between adapting somehow. In the midst of all of them, finally God says that now you can declare that salat will be open. It will be congregational salat now. You were doing it in hiding before, now you can stand up and announce to the whole city that we will do congregational salat. In the midst of all those people, those Arabs, those muhajireen who had just migrated, left their families, they're on the, on the bottom of the food chain at that point. They left all their wealth. Hazrat Abu Bakr brought nothing with him, practically. Hazrat Usman had nothing. Hazrat Umar had nothing. Hazrat Ali had nothing. They arrived in this new city, hoping to get something. What can they do now? In the midst of all of them, the Holy Prophet Muhammad turned to a man called Bilal. And he said, you will give the azan. You will call the city to the prayer. To the, come to success, come to prayer. You will be the one. Why on earth would he pick him? Think about it. There were enough people who were marginalized as it is in that city right then and there. Why would he pick him? He's already treating him with love and respect. He's already said he's free. He's living independently. Because he wanted to show the world that I can make him a leader now. He will lead this. Because if I make him a leader today, then tomorrow my people will have no problem putting them in leadership positions again. America didn't do that. We are still struggling with how many senators and how many presidents that we can actually get who are African American. We're still struggling. So many years, 200 years later. But the Holy Prophet Muhammad broke that cycle right then and there. The next is about alcohol. As I mentioned to you already, the 95,000 deaths happen each year from alcohol consumption. And I've told you that they used to drink alcohol in the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad like it was water. They didn't even have a glass of water. They would have a glass of for, for their alcohol. And they would use that for everything. But mainly it was for there for alcohol. It was so much so that they would drink it five times a day. You know, you do salat five times a day? Well, they drank it five times a day. And just so you know this, alcohol was not banned from the first day of Islam. Many years later, in Medina, it was finally announced that alcohol is now banned. But how did they respond? Because don't forget, in America in 1920, alcohol was also banned. 1920. It was banned here in America. And 1400 years ago, it was banned in Medina. But what was their response? The difference in their response. In Medina, 1400 years ago when it was banned, they said that very next moment, the streets were filled with alcohol and wine. They were just draining down through the, the gutter system they had. And nobody turned back again. Now once since then, has anybody turned back in Islam with the idea that they can drink alcohol? It's impossible. But why did it happen? Because in America, the moment they announced there's no more alcohol, we had people like Al Capone come out of nowhere, who were now sharing alcohol through some sort of underground system. Getting alcohol to as many people as they can. How did the diff, why did that, and then it eventually corrupt, you know, collapsed. And America had to go back to consumption of alcohol. And today, even if I were to tell you, 100,000 people die every year, they still drink alcohol. Now why am I even talking about alcohol? 
Because first and foremost, you have to lift the society. When you lift the society and then tell them, hey, don't do this, they will accept. But if you come up with a law first and then decide now we're going to lift up the society, they will never follow. It will never be accepted. This simple secret is what this society needs today. There is nobody standing up to lift up this society. They can come up with all the laws un- under the sun. It doesn't matter. You can want all kinds of things. But until and unless we lift up our society to be free from these, these wants and these desires, you cannot eliminate alcohol. But I also want to address something that I have come to my attention. That there are Ahmadis here in America, young boys and girls who think that drinking alcohol is okay. They think somehow that a sip here and there or a glass here and there, as long as I don't get drunk, is okay. And I know the parents are looking at me like, Rabbi Sab, you probably have your data wrong, your stats are wrong, you have, you've been hearing some stories. But I'm telling you right now, these are not stories. Our youth here in America think that drinking alcohol is okay. But I want to tell them right here, right now, even a single sip, a single drop, is haram. You cannot. You must not. And if you do, you'll be on a very dark path. A path you will not be able to come back from. I promise you. And what's sad is that many of these same youngsters will go to a place, will order a drink, and when they're given a sandwich that has bacon in it, they won't eat the bacon. They refuse it. But the alcohol, no big deal. A sip here and there, no problem. There's a serious problem with that. So I'm telling you right now, if somehow you've had a sip here and there to test it out, that is haram. You have opened the doors of very dark places that will be very hard to leave. So if for whatever reason you think it's okay, please stop now. Because I'm telling you, I have been there. I've lived in the islands. I've lived in various places, even in America, where I have seen the outcome of alcohol. You don't know where it will lead you to. And I wish I could take you to some of these places so you could see where it would lead you. But all I can tell you now is a word of warning. Please let it go. The last was of course about the wealth gap. And I will quickly sum it up here because I've taken a little bit extra time. As you all know that the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, spoke about wealth inequality at a time long before when there was no governments, there was no police, there was no, no system to regulate anything. And so anybody could just usurp all the money in the world and it would change nothing. And it was at that time that he introduced zakat. And what is zakat in essence? It's a wealth tax. He told the rich and wealthy, stop hoarding all the money. Imagine if this room is our society. And this group right here has all the money. And they decide to keep it. They're going to keep it in their homes. And the rest of us are fighting over five, six dollars. Whoever can get a hold of those five or six dollars. We have less money, so we're going to create more friction. There's going to be more wealth inequality. And the, the more that will result in fighting, in crimes, in hate, and in envy, and enmity. And so Allah Almighty says through the Holy Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, that this group right here that's hoarding all this wealth, put it back in the society. Let the people have a chance at that wealth. 
And that is something we need to change even here. We need to change the mindset. Because if you didn't know this, the rich are just getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, and this leads to wars. Look at historically, go back in America, find those times when we decided to go to war internationally. Or World War I, World War II, what were those things that set up for that ground, the ground reality? Our missionary, right before World War II, here in America, Sufi Bengali Sahib, he wrote in various newspapers saying, the wealth inequality is rising so much so, I warn you, there will be a war. He said in 1930s, saying that the more it happens, the more there will be crime, hatred, and even people will kill and fight each other. So remove the wealth inequality, remove the wealth gap, and you will have a balance in society. Guess what? They didn't listen. And guess what? We had World War II, where millions and millions of people died. It was all sparked by this idea, when the rich hold on to the wealth, and the poor don't give it, and the poor don't get it. But on the flip side, how do you and I do it? We're not, we're not multi-billionaires. What do we do? We're not the mega rich. It is we rewire ourselves again. We are the grassroots that will make that change in our lives. Find the happiness in helping people. They have done studies upon studies. They gave two groups of people $100 each. One they said go and spend on yourself. The other said go and spend on somebody else. And they tracked to see what was their happiness. And they found that those people who spent on other people were in fact happier than the people who spent on themselves. And as you all know that there's a season of buying things that's coming up really soon. Christmas season. People buy things like crazy for themselves. This is a time we have to rewire ourselves. We're going to be excited. Black Friday is coming up. We're all going to be standing in line all night just to get that one television. But I'd rather suggest you spend all night in Tahajjud. I know it'll be a hard change if you're the one who stands in line for Black Friday for you to stand in night for, for prayer. But keep that in mind that that's the aim we should have is connect with God Almighty and distance ourselves from this material world. In addition though, to remove this wealth gap, he also said don't sell things with inflated prices. If something is worth a certain amount, add a little bit of profit and leave it at that. But our society doesn't listen. There was a time to show you how beautiful the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad are. There was a time when a man was trying to sell his horse. And let's say for example, he said it will be at $600. And another Muslim came to buy this horse. He looked at the horse, he examined it, and he said, you know what? I'll give you 700 for it. And the man selling it said, no, 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 no. I don't think it's worth more than 600. I only want 600. And the man buying it said, no, but I'm going to give you 700. I'm looking at it, it's a really good quality. It's the best horse I can, I can even imagine. How do we bring about that transformation? It doesn't happen in one day. It's going to happen with us, and it's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen when we go and we buy something or we sell something. We be honest ourselves. When you're going to go online and sell your iPhone and you know there's a cracked screen or there's something wrong with it, you don't put it for the full price. You don't try to make that extra buck. You accept that your thing is, even though nobody can see it, you accept the value of it. And you sell it according to that value. These are the small things that we can do now to transform who we are. Why is any of this important? As I mentioned, social transformation is key. 
If we don't bring about this social transformation, even in our own small setting of this small jamaat, if we don't do it, then we will not be doing the due diligence of why we are even here. We have made it thus far. We have to bring about that change in ourselves. We have to stop forgetting that, you know, I do salat, I know how many rakat I need to do. Most of the time I open up a question answer session and that's all people care about. In Ramadan, what time can I open my seri? What time can I open my fast? How many khajur can I eat in the morning? Or how many rakat do I have to do in fajr? These are trivial things, I'm sorry. You're not asking the right questions. You may ask them, sure. But ask about these real social issues and how the, the real answers are. Because Islam has the answers. Ask about why your society has this wealth inequality or this, you know, this imbalance, the uneasiness, why depression is on the rise, why there are sleep aids. Because that's the problems that society has that they need you to answer for them. But if you're too concerned with the idea of how many rakat and how many khajur and all these small, small things, then we'll be set back. And we'll wait another hundred years. And we'll probably be sitting in the same building in the same way our next generation will be sitting here talking about the same things. Let's make a promise that we will look deeper into our faith and understand that the Holy Prophet Muhammad وسلم, did not just come here to give you some basic five pillars of Islam and six articles of faith. He gave you a social order, a new world order that the promised Messiah has re-emphasized and re-established for us. And our khulafa are constantly reminding us to do it. It is now our responsibility to get deeper into the teachings of Islam, embrace it, and set the world on the right track. May Allah help us to do so. Amen. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala ali Muhammadin wa barik wa sallim inna ka hamidun majeed.